another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting to you from high above Dongcheng District in Beijing, joined as always by my co-host David Moser, who is parts unknown. So David, help us out. Where are you right now and where are you headed? Uh, I'm in the heart of uh, COVIDville, COVIDville, Oklahoma. No, actually, Oklahoma City, but sort of feels like COVIDville. But the good news is I'm processing my visa now, or my university is, and uh, I hopefully am headed back to Beijing this fall. Got my fingers crossed, but looking forward to seeing you in person. And I've heard that, that a lot of the universities and schools in China are starting to, yeah, are starting the process of bringing back some of the international faculty. So. That's kind of a hopeful sign, right? Yeah, of course. Of course, the first wave is the hardest, and there's going to be a lot of uh, very rough uh, patches, paperwork to to do, and also lots and lots of quarantining. So I've got my books and uh, all of my (laughs) podcast material. Uh, I may do a podcast under quarantine. We'll see. David, today we're really lucky because we're going to be having, uh, a little while, we're going to be having our guest Lenora Chu join us. Uh, as many of our listeners know, Lenora is a journalist, and she's also the author of the award-winning book, Little Soldiers, which was a narrative account of uh, China's education system as published in 2017. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, to talking to her because one, and this is one of my favorite books of the last few years, and she actually name drops you, David. Oh, yeah, you know. I saw that. I was uh, very flattered. Uh, yeah, go get the book. She mentions me. <laughs> So, yeah, the, the, the subtitle of this book, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. And we talked last, our last podcast about uh, the Chinese education system at kind of the post-secondary level, which is where you and I are more familiar, having taught, uh, been involved in that system for quite some mm-hmm. time. That's right. Yeah. And so it'd be, it'd be interesting to get some, a different perspective. Yeah, it's a great book. The Chinese education system is very dynamic and changing fast, but her, her book is, uh, I think, a little bit timeless because it, it brings up uh, all the issues uh, uh, and from a very personal vantage point. Yeah, I think that really makes that really kind of, I think that's part of the reason why I, I enjoyed the book so much. I like books that are at least some part kind of memoir. And, you know, I think Lenora's personal experience with the subject, I think, really gave it an immediacy that was relatable even to me i'm not a parent but i would imagine especially if somebody was a parent and thinking about all the choices that have to be made about education and then thinking about that in context of being you know in a foreign country and a country like china where you know the educational system is such a hot topic not just here but you know around the world okay so uh so david do we have lenora on the line i think she's on the line yeah so without ado uh welcome to the show lenora chu thank you so much for having me yeah, we really appreciate it, Lenora. It's, it's, uh, we, we both enjoyed the book so much, and it's been really nice to kind of go back and to look at it, particularly you know, a few years later and thinking about how things may have changed and, and, and how things may have progressed. And I, I was also, we're also really curious too, um, you're now in Germany, is that right? I'm in Berlin, yes. We moved okay, here so last summer, summer of 2019. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I know you've, uh, you've told this story many times, but I was wondering if maybe you could, you could help us by starting off telling us a little bit about your China story and, you know, where you've been since you've left Shanghai. And because and, I really think it's really, it'd be fascinating to think about, uh, you know, some of the updates, not only on the characters in your book, and one of the main characters in the book, of course, 
is your son uh, Rainy. So uh, yeah, so tell tell us what's your China story and and, and how did you get to uh, how did you get to Germany now? Yeah, that's funny. You know, I guess our China story started in 2010. Um, I guess you could go back even further and say that my family's China story started back in. Anyways, you know, my my family history has been in China for a very long time. But in 1949, my particular branch of the family left um, to go to the U.S. via Taiwan. So when uh, my husband in 2010 wants, you know, gets an opportunity to go back to China, it was actually pretty a, a reluctant move for me. Um, you know, I relate to China and my Chinese heritage in a very different way from someone who studies it academically and. And of course, when I raised the issue with my parents, they said, you know, we fled that country um, six, 60 years ago. Why would you want to go back? You know, you can't drink the tap water. You know, I was coming to the China experience in a very, from a very different perspective. But of course, once I was there, my journalistic instincts kicked in. And there's just too much going on not to tell um, the story of China to the rest of the world. And I felt that for education, I was in a unique position to tell that story because A, of the way that I was raised in the US by Chinese parents, but also B, um, having a young son in local Chinese school at the same time that PISA had put Shanghai at the top of the education charts internationally. Um, so it was sort of a an accident, a happy accident, but I happened to be equipped with the language skills and the journalistic training to, to do the story. So then I started to take notes. At what point did you decide to write the book? It was, I, I, was it, I'm sure it was after Rainey went into kindergarten. Well, was it after Rainey went into kindergarten and after the experiences you had, or, or was this something you would kind of been thinking about even before your decision to place them in a, in a Chinese kindergarten. Yeah, so if you're a good writer, and I haven't been a great writer recently, I've just been too busy, but if you're a good writer, you're always taking notes every single day, right? And when I landed in China, I knew that I wanted to do some kind of long-form project. I wasn't sure what. And I was just writing down the conversations that I was having with people, the observations that I, I'd made. And I think a lot of that detail um, shows in the book. Um, my previous attempt wasn't so detailed because I didn't have all of that granular detail that you need to make uh, a narrative interesting. So from the very start, I was taking notes and then I wasn't sure exactly what shape um, the book would take until from a news perspective, again, PISA put Shanghai uh, at the top of the charts. Then I saw all these things start to happen. Shanghai is the best students in the world. You know, the UK sending teachers to Shanghai to learn from Shanghai math teachers and all this ridiculousness that sprung up around PISA. And, um, you know, I sort of piggybacked off of that news interest to then develop this narrative. So I always had the idea, but I, I don't think I sold the book proposal until I think it was 2013 or 2014. Lenora, I, I, it, was, it was big news here in China, and I, I think it was also pretty big news around the world too. But for our listeners who may not remember, what, was, what, what is PISA and why was that such a big deal for Shanghai? Uh, back in 2013. Sure. And PISA is very controversial in not only education circles, but also in China circles. And we can talk about that. But the OECD basically every three years goes around the world and tests 15 year olds in a number of countries. They started small and now they're up to almost 80 countries. Um, and, you know, they're mostly wealthy OECD countries, but there's there's a mix in there. And the idea is to see how teenagers internationally are doing uh, against a benchmark that they've created. And, 
you know, I look at PISA as data. It's good data. Now, you could say, and people have, and I also agree, that the way they cut the sample sizes are suspect. You know, we, you, uh, Jeremiah and David and I, we know the intricacies of education system in China. And we know that, for example, there's not going to, 15-year-olds, if you cut a sample size of 15-year-olds, you're not going to be capturing a lot of kids of migrant workers, for example, right? I mean, there's all kinds of problems. But if you actually look at the way they sample in general, they're really only testing 42 kids per school in a select number of schools per country. So they're really only testing something like five to 8,000 students per country anyways. So from that perspective, yes, I think there are some issues. But if you look at the data in its sort of raw form, which I do, I, f- I think you find all kinds of interesting insights. And that's sort of where I prefer to focus. Um, what was interesting to me, watching Shanghai climb to the top of the charts, uh, see the announcement was made in 2010 of December, was how the Chinese were treating the piece of results. So the rest of the world was heralding Shanghai and the Chinese themselves were saying, no, 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 guys, PISA does not mean we have a good fundamental education. We have all kinds of problems with our education system. And, and, and that is a conflict and, and, and conflict makes for good narrative. Well, let's jump into that now that and now that you've mentioned the the conflict there. Let's get a, uh, get the big picture a little bit before we dive more into the book. Uh, as you say, you know, China often inspires observers to offer wildly different takeaways. It sort of is good at that. It's 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 sort of a a clearinghouse for all kinds of, of completely contradictory <laughs> results. You know, we're we're told Chinese students are the best in the world as you just said, but uh, then are they just robots without creativity forged through a crucible of rote learning and ideological indoctrination and and all these things? And as you say, sometimes the Chinese view of their own, uh, you know, vaunted education system is is much different than the Western one. So at at the risk of generalizing here, do you, th- do you think that Chinese schools have, have just gotten an, a bad rap or have been unfairly scrutinized in some ways that Western systems are not? And do you think, what are the stereotypes about Chinese education that you think need a, a serious rethinking? Well, I think the, the rote learning and the lack of creativity is sort of a trope that we all latch onto. And, and I understand that it, it feels good. And I think that when we in America, or even here in Berlin, you know, you see Chinese students, first and second generation, oftentimes they are running circles uh, around, you know, the the rest of the kids academically for a number of reasons, right? I mean, there are many drivers um, behind that, that phenomenon. But I think it's easy for us to just say, oh, thank God, at least we're creative and they're not, you know, let's try to hang on to something. And that's what we hang on to, to make us feel good. But You know, what I wanted to do with the book is break that down. Um, You know, what is creativity? So all the people who are saying China's just producing rote learning robots, oftentimes when you press them a little bit and say, well, then tell me what is creativity? A, they couldn't come up with a definition or much less B, tell us how to get there. Right. And and I think these are these are just some of the narratives that I think are, are very damaging in our understanding of China. Look, um, there are lots of problems. So when you look at creativity, for example, um, this is a, a Harvard study out of it was out of the School of Education. It was a study that came out of Harvard about 10, 15 years ago that actually broke down the process of creativity into three parts. 
and you know it might be too granular to go into now but what i found was the chinese are really really good at that one part which is knowledge and domain specific expertise right they almost overemphasize the cramming of knowledge the acquisition of knowledge it's something that's very important to them but in that second sphere original thinking coming at a problem a different way making connections that were not connected before we in the education system in the west are generally better at that just because of the way we structure our classrooms the way we see authority and the way that we encourage kids to speak up uh, against authority and to take risks we're better at that second part and then the third part is basically intrinsic motivation which frankly we are not very good at in the chinese school system I say we, but you know, I'm not part of the Chinese school system anymore. The Chinese school system is not very good at cultivating curiosity in kids. In other words, if they want to study something that's outside the normal box, they can't go and explore that curiosity. So you actually need all three components for the process of creativity. And I would say that generally speaking, the Chinese system is better at one of them, and then we in the West are better at the other two. But you need all three together for the creative process. Yeah, very interesting, Lenora. In our last podcast, we discussed uh, Howard Gardner's book. If, for people that didn't hear the last podcast, I mean, one of his observations was that uh, the Chinese education system was very good at teaching uh, skill skill sets, and he gives the example of opening a door with a key. That the parents would teach the kids to open a door by holding their hand and giving them very good instruction exactly how to use a key the right way, whereas the American parents would just throw the key in the kid's hand and say, here, figure out how to open the door. And they both learn how to open the door. But his point was that the Chinese kids learn very quickly and very effectively in skill mastery, whereas the American kids are, are not only learning skills, but they're also learning uh, general problem solving. That was his point. There, what did your research show? You, you have a great anecdote about the university lecture in Shanghai who asked a group of student volunteers to put a bag over their head, and then they were asked to quote, remove something they didn't need, and most removed watches and shoes, and and a very small percent actually thought out of the box and and said, well, remove the bag. What do I need this bag for? So so can you you expand a little bit on this this creativity issue, and what does it say about the role of authority of thinking through problems? Yeah, that's that's funny that you bring up that anecdote. I haven't thought about that in a while. And I think you know, you could say that some kids are going to just assume that's outside the realm of possibility, right? Okay, you know, the construct is I'm keeping this bag on my head and therefore it's not part of the game. And and that's maybe the problem with these more rigid authoritarian classroom structures is that, you know, really everything should be on the table. You know, I, I that's one of the things... Again, I think that we're just so good at in the Western classroom. It's and you see it just in an observation. You spend an hour in the Chinese classroom. You spend an hour in any American classroom, and just the language is different. You know, what do you think? You know, kids, what do you think about what we just talked about? Challenge me, and let's discuss now. The best Chinese schools are doing that now. Our last few years in Shanghai, I feel our kids were getting a really stellar education and change is happening very quickly in these elite urban centers of China. But in rural Anhui or Hefei or whatever it is, I, I don't think change is happening as quickly. Lenore, I was just when I was reading the book, I was struck that, you know, school for kids in China is really difficult but it seems to be just as hard for the parents and the teachers. And one of the challenges I, I, I really um, empathized with in your book 
was that so many aspects of the system that are intuitive for people here um, are, for those of us who did not grow up here, sometimes very hard to navigate. And I was just thinking about some of the the anecdotes about the the use of WeChat and the kind of parent one-upsmanship on the WeChat to the, I don't know if this is too strong a word, but the, the corruption and the role of gray money and the gifts in education. And, and I'm wondering, you know, things, things were already, in some of the schools you wrote about, these were things that were already starting to change, you know, five, six years ago. Do you think this is still as much of a problem as, as it was before in terms of some of the, the gray money and, and the gifts? And kind of thinking too, in terms too, what were some of the pressures that you felt as a parent of a child in, in, a, in a Chinese school system? So I do think the gray money is changing in, in quite sophisticated ways. In other words, you know, in 2013, 2014, you could just openly hand a teacher a gift and that was fine. You know, it didn't matter if 10 people saw it, you know, if it was small enough, right? We're not talking about apartments, we're talking about a purse. Um, but just say 2016, 2017, after, you know, the whole anti-corruption campaign, it would you had to be part of an accepted circle of trusted people to be able to give a, te- a gift to a teacher. In other words, a teacher would only accept it from people that they thought were safe, that wouldn't report them, and everything got driven underground. Um, I mean, the numbers do bear this out. I do think that there was less gift giving going around, right? Um, Louis Vuitton would attest to that in China. Um, but, you know, I still think there are other issues. There are other ways to show favor. And, and that's just the way the culture operates, right? I, I will say that I'm relieved. You mentioned there's a lot of parental pressure. I'm sort of relieved to be out of the system because we worked so hard at it. And my older son is very academically oriented and he was still doing native level Mandarin. We, we did everything, right? We did that. We also did the sports and the math and, you know, his entire class was testing two years ahead of the UK and the US average. It's exhausting, right? But that's what we had to do just to make him feel like he was worth something. Um, My younger kid, we were entering first grade and the school violin teacher had an orientation for the six-year-olds. And I show up, about 50 parents sitting in a room, and I realize of all of these families, my son was the only one who had not yet learned how to play violin. In other words, all these going into first graders already knew. And they've been playing for a couple of years. And that is just devastating and exhausting. And not only that, after the orientation finished, I watched about a dozen parents follow the teacher out of the classroom. They trailed him across campus and out to the bus stop, still asking questions. That's exhausting, you know. And I think, look, um, this is an unusual sub subset of Chinese kids. You know, we're talking about Shanghai, elite trophy city, and probably one of the better schools in that city, you know, um, but it's exhausting. And I think that you and I all know that Chinese parents find it exhausting, which is why they were looking abroad, you know, even earlier and earlier in the educational careers of their kids. Well, it's interesting you bring this up because the we have the recent news about the Felicity Huffman style parents who are literally buying their, their kids at you know, tickets to Harvard, Yale, or whatever, which, you know, when I saw that, I immediately thought of, you know, uh, this is Chinese education, you know, American style. Uh, but, you know, it sort of makes you rethink or, or reevaluate uh, aspects of the system like the Gaokao 
you know, that's a controversial issue, but at least Chinese people will tell you, well, at least that's the only, you know, that's the only fair way to allocate those resources when you have something like 9 million kids, literally, the last year before that's taking that test. What do you think of, of that aspect of the system? Uh, I know the Gaokao gets over-talked about, and it's, it's, it's being revised constantly. But what do you think about uh, that aspect and how it fits into the system? And do, does the U.S. need something like that? If I may jump in here, too, I think one of the other things is, you know, by focusing on the Gaokao, we, I think, which, is, which gets, all the, 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 gets all the press, I mean, it also ignores a lot of the uh, lower exams, like the Zhongkao, that in some ways, as you wrote about in your book, um, are, are really the moment where a, a lot of kids kind of face, uh, you know, elimination from this system at, at a really uh, delicate time in their development. So I think the Gaokao, if you ask Chinese parents and students, and actually I have, I feel like there was a survey that was mentioned in an article last year. Most don't want to do away with the system because if you think about change, in the most critical thing in your family life, which is college admissions, it feels comfortable. At least we understand what we're dealing with. Don't change it now, change it after I'm through, right? Because I know what it takes to get through the system. I know what it looks like. I know what the lanes look like. I know where they go, right? And and the other problem with changing the Gaokao is you know, anyone who's ever tried to look at other criteria, basically we're talking about college admissions, right? reference letters, community service, you know, whether you manage to start a company and sell it to Baidu or Google when you were seven years old, all these things, you could say those those types of things could be bought with money, influence or connections. You always, the, the people who are thinking about it, I think always go back to Gaokao is the best system that we've got for the moment, you know, and I, and I think that other not, other forces will come into play that will reform the system on its own. For example, people just having other options outside the Gaokao. Like the number of kids who are taking Gaokao year over year continues to get a little bit smaller. I just think it's really, really hard to change. And I think if you ask parents and students what they want, they don't want to mess with the system right now because they've got it figured out. Um, is it the most equal way to select for college? Probably not, but it depends on what the alternatives are. Because I see a lot of back doors and a lot of gray areas if you try to introduce other methods. I, I totally appreciate that the that students in the in the West or in the United States and, and other countries face a, a lot of pressure. But I kinda wonder too, and this is maybe this is the wrong way to put it, but are we coddling the kids? I mean I I've I've taught American students here in China for uh for, for many years and so has David and you know one of the things I've noticed you know, and, and I, I'm going to try to avoid just being like the cranky old guy, you know, the kids these days with their hair and the music and the, uh, but at the same time, I, I, I teach these, I teach students and I teach students alongside uh, faculty, many of them from China. And I, I often find myself in the position of having to explain, um, you know, some of the things about the U.S. education system that are really uh, quite literally foreign to, to the Chinese system. You know, the questions I get about students who, you know, for, for very valid reasons, you know, they have, uh, you know, they have learning challenges, so they don't, they have untimed tests, you know, students who come to our programs from the United States who may have, you know, mental health issues, or they may be on medication, or they may, it, it, they may be students that in China wouldn't have gone as far as they did in the educational system, you know, because there were 
accommodations there was support for them but that's still but at the same time there's also a real kind of sense of a lot of students do arrive in china with a, a sense of entitlement over their self-esteem that is very different from I, I wouldn't just say from chinese students but from students in a lot of other parts of the world as well and you bring up you, you mentioned a really good point uh, i guess you quoted um, jim stigler who brought up a point you know americans are okay with sports ranking sports you're like the eighth best tennis player um you know under 15 in and that's you just got to try harder and there's number seven for you but when we do that for academics or you know if a teacher singles out a student in a way that may hurt their self-esteem then they're going to get a call from the parents and you know i i, I teach students who are six thousand miles away from their parents and i've gotten calls from parents about students feeling that they weren't necessarily as supported or that I might have made them cry while visiting the summer palace. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, what uh, is this? Is this also is is this also kind of a stereotype, or 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 is it? Or are we coddling the kids? You know, that's always a tough one to answer because I feel like I always offend somebody. You know, there's a lot of talk about snowflakes in the U.S. I remember in the very beginning when my book came out, I was getting tons of messages over my website, and you know, a couple times. The, the phrases that stuck out to me were, you know, American kids are now snowflakes. And another teacher had written, I've been teaching for 50 years and all the kids now need puppies and safe spaces in the corner. And um, in other words, that they're soft, they're getting soft. How do you steal a kid? How do you get a kid ready for the world? And I think people answer that question a lot of different ways. Look, my son has had to deal with all kinds of disappointments and adjustments and now he's living in a country where you know he's just learning the language he's been put through so much more than i had ever you know experienced before i even went off to college and i think that's grit and resilience that will pay off for him hopefully right um and i understand the need or the feeling to want to protect our kids but i i think that if you don't have an honest conversation with children about how they're doing and where they need to improve, who are you serving actually? Who are you actually serving? You know, you might protect the kid from understanding the truth of where his performance is on a scale of one to 10. But, you know, at some point he's gonna get out in the world and he'll get it, have a job review or he'll try to get into college and his SAT scores don't lie or whatever it is. I, I, I don't understand the point of shielding our kids from the cold hard truth that said, what we do really well in Western cultures is accounting for differences, like celebrating differences um, and special needs kid. If you have a special needs child in China, you're out of luck, right? They don't, the system doesn't do anything for that kid. Even the high performing ones, even the, the ones that have as many Western teachers and Western administrators as they do Chinese administrators, they will find a way to select those kids out of the process. You know, I've heard it. I've heard all kinds of things in the admissions process for the schools that we were in in Shanghai. So China, China does not do very well with that. But they also don't really shield kids from the truth, right? You always know where you stand. And because you know where you stand, I feel the truth stings a little bit less because they don't take it as such a, um, a reflection upon your self-esteem or your self-worth, I think. Can I ask you about a, um, I think, an interesting, uh, really salient difference between the two systems, maybe even between the two cultures that you do raise in your book and that I've thought a lot about through the years raising a daughter in Beijing, is that the, the U.S. system tends to acknowledge that some people have aptitudes. 
we talk about you know aptitudes and we have aptitude tests and we say this person does not have an aptitude for math or for music or this or that and we accept that and we sometimes structure the curriculum to fit what the child is, is seems to be bound for success in and what they are not going to be good at is sort of a deterministic kind of whereas the chinese tend to just stress hard work if you're having trouble in math it's just because you're not working hard enough and so put more work into it you know i faced this conundrum with our daughter who as an american i was just thinking you know she's just not destined to be a mathematician <laughs> she's not where her 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 talents lie and that the tutors and the people were saying no 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 you can do it just work work harder and went through a lot of frustration can you just address that really core difference and and honestly where do you stand on <laughs> on that on that issue so there's a longitudinal study that i quote a lot that gets people very very upset and this study basically shows that white and they, this is the study's authors not me white americans tend to believe that math abilities academic abilities are innate they're inborn in other words you have it or you don't and in the chinese culture just like you said, you can work hard enough at it and you will succeed. And I think that is one of the factors that accounts for the difference in, you know, math scores and math aptitudes, the cultural appreciation of math and science, or even whether we think it's important. Because if you think something's achievable by any child, if they work hard enough, then you also believe that anyone can attain it, right? It's a great equalizer. We can all, we can all, it's important and we can all achieve it. I really think that the U.S. way, and I, I, didn't know, I didn't know that this was part of the culture until really this longitudinal study pulled it out. But I think it's really dangerous, and here's why. Because if you think that math and science ability are innate, studies have also shown that teachers are more likely to look at minority kids and poor kids and say, you know, you don't have what it takes in math, so don't worry about it. They, in other words, they let off on the gas pedal. So you're, it's like the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. So now apply that context to schooling. So I think it's really, really dangerous in early years. I'm talking primary. I, I don't think everybody needs to learn calculus and I don't think everybody has to do calculus well. I just don't think it's that important. But primary school, if you apply this, everybody can do it if you work hard enough. I think that that's really, really valuable. But in, unfortunately... You have second and third grade teachers that I interviewed in the U.S. who said, ah, math, you know, third grade math is important, but past that, it's, it's elective. I think that was the quote. It's not. It's not elective. There are research studies that show primary school math aptitude and abilities pay off 30 years later, right? It's important. We have to tackle this. And, and bringing it back to PISA, whatever you think of PISA, the most interesting part of PISA to me is how poorly Americans do in math. We do terribly in math, and it is a huge problem, and I don't understand why more people aren't doing something about it. Apart from the, the China aspect, you know, one of the things when I was rereading re this book, it reminded me of exactly what you just said, which is the importance of math and the way that math knowledge gets kind of denigrated in a way. And I listen, I am totally guilty of this. I am not particularly good at math. It is a running joke with my students when I say something like the U.S. has been around for 400 years. I know exactly when the U.S. started. I just can't seem to do the basic arithmetic. 
they all laugh at me and then I remind them that I also am the one who calculates their grades. There is this kind of thing where like people are like, oh, well, I'm not that good at math. And I, I keep wondering, if, is there any other subject that is someone who has a reasonable expectation to be seen as an educated person could just blow off that way? Like, yes, I, I consider myself an educated person, but I don't know anything about science or, you know, I am a reasonably educated person. But, you know, I really kind of stopped reading books around the third grade level. I mean, you know, nobody says that. When I was rereading this book and I was looking at some of those statistics that you put in there, some of those studies that you cited. And I was like, you know, that is absolutely true. And it, it really... It caused it, it caused me to kind of check myself a little bit and thinking like, you know, maybe I, I'm a little bit too proud of something that I really should know more about. Or if I don't know more about it, I should be a little bit more um, appreciative of, of what math education really does mean in the long term, even if it's not about doing calculus at a cocktail party, the, the kind of knowledge, the kind of knowledge base and the, the kind of way it develops somebody's, you know, just the way we approach problems and problem solving is just so important. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And that was one of the biggest adjustments. I think we went to a community and a culture where, you know, my kids were very proud to be good at math. I, I don't think this was in the book, but I remember my son was seven or eight and we were back in the U.S. for summer camp. And I heard him telling one of his new American baseball friends oh, how high can you score in a math test? And I remember saying, oh, don't say that. You're not going to have any friends. But you know, <laughs> it's okay to talk about that in China. People are just, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing. You're not penalized for being a nerd. And I miss that. That's one of the things I miss about the culture is because it's harder for to get your own kid to prioritize something if they look around and nobody else is prioritizing it. And in fact, if they're good at it, they hide it. And that's what we're going through right now. And, I, and, and that's what's happening in a lot of American high schools. The researchers, the sociologists have pointed this out. You get, you, there's a nerd penalty, right? And um, I miss that about China, the fact that there isn't one. So that, that raises a question, a sort of follow-up on the books. So, so how is Rainey doing now? Is he adjusting to a different kind of educational system? And you sort of mentioned, you sort of hinted at problems he might be having, but is he, has he made an adjustment? You know, fortunately, we kept up a lot of the things this poor kid, you know, he's he's great academically, but he's also, I think, is a pretty good talent, pretty talented athlete. So he'd always played football, actually soccer. I, I you know, American audience, it's soccer, um, and baseball and tennis, and and those were the things that I think helped him bridge the cultures because we found his baseball team and his football team and and that sort of thing. Absent that, it's it, it's hard. It's really hard. And by the way, all of those teams meet in German, so you know, we're dropping off our kids at German football practice for the first time. And these kids are big and they have <laughs> balls that literally go into the corner of the goal. Right. I mean, come on. Football in, in China wasn't really quite there yet. My son was always the best of every team. But in, in Germany, look, these kids are good. And and not only that, you know, the coach is screaming at everybody in German. And he's been through a lot this year. But Hopefully, this will make the college transition like a piece of cake. <laughs> like, college is nothing, you know, like moving from China to Germany and not speaking German yet, you know. So he's doing fine. I think it took a while to, to realize that this was the right move, <laughs> to be honest, uh, for the kids and for the family. But professionally, we're really enjoying it. So professionally, it was the right move. But family life was, was difficult at first. But we've all made the adjustment now. Um, I think we're having to find ways to supplement areas that I think the schooling is weak, which includes math, frankly. 
So he went from being two years ahead of grade level. Um, so at the end of fourth grade, he was doing sixth grade math. Um, and now, you know, <laughs> most of his classmates don't have their multiplication tables yet, right? They just don't think it's important. So this has been a huge adjustment for us. So now that said, I don't want to diss the German system. They just think that the content needs to come later. And Howard Gardner talks about this too. He compares the Asian and the Western systems and the Westerners think the content is okay if it comes later, but the Chinese are very scared that if you don't get the content early, that it will never come. You know, it's just a very different approach. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lenora, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and we, we look forward to, as David said, we really look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Well, well, that was great. It was, it was such a treat to, to talk to Lenora. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, truly one of my favorite books about China of the last few years. And, and, uh, it was great that she took the time to kind of talk a little bit more and, of course, update us uh, about, you know, all some of the people and, and some of the themes that she, she wrote about. Yeah, exactly. I think I think education uh, for all of us, we're educators, obviously, but I, th- I think it's a very vital issue. And this is one of those areas where I think uh, the U.S. and China should continue to cooperate and to learn from each other. I can't think of a better domain. You know, obviously, as Lenora said, they do some things better than we do, and we do a few things better than they than they do. So I think I see it as an area that we you know we should we should cover more of it on the podcast. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess it's it's just too easy to say like, okay, we're going to do like a middle ground kind of like you know we'll meet in the middle. But I mean, this really is one of those areas where you know it does make some sense. And I going back to something I talked that we talked about with with Lenora, you know, we're talking about the this idea of like coddling the kids, and I'm thinking about this, and and you know, obviously we have our as teachers. Um, we have our own personal takeaways and maybe even like, you know, personal frustrations sometimes about, you know, some of the attitudes of students and their relationship with teachers. I kind of keep thinking about this, that a lot of the students, that a lot of students in the U.S. who are, are in school or in university that just would not have made it in, in China. And, you know, just one of the things I think about, you know, a few years ago when we were still living kind of in this old courtyard in uh, in the Hutongs, there was a, a family of migrant workers that lived kind of in the little space behind or next to us. And it was a family, I don't know, it, of uh, it was a little hard to determine how everyone was related, but it was about four or five kids and about three or four adults. And the oldest kid at the time was about, uh, you know, 17, there about 16, 17. And she didn't go to school. And, and we asked uh, her mother uh, why. And she said, well, it's because she's an idiot. She's stupid. And, and I, I mean, and, and talking with her, you got the sense that, I mean, you know, she was um, clearly there were learning issues there of some kind. There was possibly some kind of intellectual disability, not particularly profound or anything. That it had been a determination had been made that you know she was not going to be going to school and you know we we moved out a couple years later and you know obviously we we kind of lost touch with this family but I I was talking with my wife the other day and in the context of this book and I'm thinking you know I, I wonder what became of her because the options for a young woman in China who bounces out of the system or who never gets a chance in the system, you know, those options are, are not always great. It, it does make me, while it is true that I can occasionally, um, in my old crusty old guy way, think, you know, about are we worried a little too much about kids' self-esteem and, and make, you know, kind of doing a sort of one-size-fits-all fast food happy meal approach to, to education in the States. But, you know, I also think, too, it, that a lot of kids are it's really it's good that this system does support 
a lot of kids who who deserve a chance, but you know just would not cut it in the in the Chinese system. Right. Well, stay tuned. We're I think the Chinese are very well aware of these problems, and and I would see changes as we as we move forward for sure. Okay. Well, I think that's a wrap for today, Jeremiah. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it. So let's thank the listeners for listening to Barbarians at the Gate podcast on whatever podcast platform you're downloading from. We also invite you to check us out on the China channel at the LA Review of Books website. In addition to featuring our podcast, they also have a diverse and constantly updated archive of articles, book reviews, memoirs, etc., and and advice on learning Chinese, by the way, as well as some other excellent China-related podcasts. So check it out. So, Jeremiah, whether in Beijing or in Zoom, I look forward to seeing you in the next couple weeks. Yeah, I am. I, I think it's going to be, once again, I think it will be great to, to be doing the podcast on the same continent. And yep. uh, uh, until then, David, you know, stay safe in uh, Trumpistan and uh, <laughs> talk to you later. All right. Bye.